You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. We're going to be ending, concluding our, ser- our sermon series on uh, an unignorable providence. And this morning we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can turn there uh, with us. If you do not have one, you can uh, get, grab one of the Bibles that's located in uh, one of the seats in front of you and If you don't have a Bible, you can call your own. Consider that a gift from us to you. We would love nothing more than to bless you with the gift of God's word this morning. Uh, Again, we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 2, verses 1 through 12. Uh, And if you could and are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 says this. For you yourselves know, brothers... That our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our, our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts." For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives." Because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we, might, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be Good morning, everyone. I want to welcome you here. My name is Court, and I'm one of the pastors at the church. And I want to just say I'm so glad that you're with us, especially if it's your first time. Thanks so much for making us a part of your week. We're glad that you are here. And we would ask you that you just make yourself known. Just let us know you were here by filling out one of those Connect cards. Uh, We would love to get to know you a little bit better. Uh, So like Ty said, we're wrapping up a short three-part sermon series that we started to kick off the year uh, entitled An Unignorable Providence. And so before I jump in and kind of dive into the text, what I'd like to do is just pray for us, ask that the Lord would speak to us through his word. He's already promised that he'd be here with us. So I just want to pray for us as hearers that we would not... uh, be idle in our listening, but like Jesus said, for he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So if you would bow your heads with me, I just want to pray and ask the Spirit to speak to us and help us to hear. Oh, Father, um, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that you're even speaking now and that we don't have to guess whether or not you'll meet us here because you are here. We thank you that even though each and every one of us may have different circumstances and issues in our lives, that your word is timeless and true and 
it carries with it the promise that you will speak to us through your word, regardless of our differences and uniqueness, that you have a way to tell us what we need to hear. And so, now, my God, would you open up our ears, would you open up the eyes of our hearts to see that we would hear your word and not just be hearers only, but doers, and that the words from this page would come alive, that you would do the challenging, do the exhorting, do the encouraging, do the rebuking where necessary, the comforting where necessary, and that we would leave here, as your word says, uh, iron sharpening iron so one brother sharpens another, that we would be sharpened by one another, um, but that we would also be well equipped and comforted by you, my God. And so we submit ourselves to you, we're grateful for your word, and we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. So the reason we called this series uh, An Unignorable Providence is really simple. We have uh, a mission, a vision here at the church, which is we want to make the gospel unignorable in our city. We've been talking about that for the last couple of weeks. Uh, And just quickly to recap, Eric kind of kicked us off and he shared uh, in the first sermon, you know, why do we want to make the gospel unignorable? Because the gospel itself is central. It is the only hope of the world because it lifts high the name of Jesus Christ, which we truly believe is the hope of the world, that everything that is wrong with the world, all of the things that we see that are broken, that they all find their solution, they find their wholeness in one name, and that's Jesus' name. And so the reason that we want to you know, make the gospel unignorable is because the gospel is a message namely about who Jesus is and what he came to do and what he said and him living a perfect life and dying a vicarious death and rising again for our justification, the promise of making us like him and ultimately one day when we see him face to face that we will be glorified in his name. So Eric talked about the gospel being this God-centered, heart-provoking, idol-smashing, fruit-bearing message and how it's absolutely central to not just everything we do here at Providence, but prayerfully everything that we do as Christians, that we need to protect it and that we need to preach it. And then last week we kind of talked about, okay, if, if the, the gospel, the, the doctrine of the gospel or the truth of the gospel needs to be protected, it needs to be preached, It also must be embodied. It also must be lived. There also has to be a gospel culture that's birthed out of this. And that when the gospel is rightly preached, when it's rightly believed, when it's rightly embraced, this outward-facing, truthful, loving culture that honors Jesus and one another. Uh, We went through Romans 12 and kind of talked about how this vision that Paul gives for the marks of the true Christian is really also a vision for gospel culture in the body of Jesus Christ. And how when the gospel is really preached and believed and embraced, it's also embodied and how these things go hand in hand in the church's mission. And this morning what I want to do is kind of close up our series by talking particularly about our responsibility to engage the community with this gospel message, both in word and in deed. So if, if this is true and if the gospel really is all things that I just said and, and we're called to live it in this way, we also have a call and a responsibility to share the gospel. And one of the things that I wrote down in my notes is the gospel is not just shareable, it must be shared. You know, sometimes the, the debate becomes like, is it shareable? Is it something that we even should, you know, talk about? Or is it too offensive to talk about? And really that's, I think, missing the point. It's not just shareable. We got to go to the, the, the other side of that equation and say it's not just shareable, it has to be shared. There's no way to embrace the gospel and not share it. Um, or as Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, he said, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. 
which is really an intense statement, right? <laughs> he says, every Christian's either engaging on mission or they're phony. And this is what he said in the Metropolitan Tabernacle to all of his, you know, English church that he had. You know, a lot of people say C.H. Spurgeon was the first mega church pastor. He had this massive crowd of people that would come to hear him preach. And, you know, that's one of the, like the space makers in the church. It's like a space maker sermon, you know what I mean? It's like there's too many people, the ushers can't find seats. Just say something like that. People will leave, you know, make some space. You're either a missionary or you're fake. That's what he said. You must imagine, you know, the, the board coming to him afterwards and be like, can you, know, you know, loosen up on that quote a little bit, you know, blunt the edge a little bit? But I do believe that what Spurgeon is saying is ultimately that we're either missionaries and we engage with all of the commands of Christ, which if you think about Jesus' last command to his disciples as he's ascending, he says, uh, all authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth, so now go and make disciples. Go share the good news of who I am and what I've done. And that's the command as Jesus is ascending, kind of last words, if you will. And so what I want to do this morning is to talk about if we truly are called to be missionaries, then maybe looking at the greatest missionary that the world's ever seen and looking at his method might be helpful to us, namely Paul the Apostle. He's not just widely accepted, it's almost irrefutable. Paul the Apostle is the greatest missionary that has ever lived. And I say that not because necessarily he has been to more nations than every single other missionary, because it's, it's entirely plausible there are other missionaries that have been to more nations. I'm not saying that because Paul saw more, more conversions than any other missionary, because it's entirely possible that you might be able to find a missionary that saw more conversions than Paul through preaching. I say that Paul is the greatest missionary that ever lived, namely because there's no example in Christian history of a man who committed himself as wholeheartedly and as totally as Paul to the mission of God and saw his work accomplish more in ripple effect over the course of hundreds and now we're in thousands of years as Paul the Apostle. If you think about it, you know, two-thirds of your New Testament, we read it. This is because of a guy not who just sat in his study and decided to write letters, but a guy who's writing and penning these words in prison because he was a missionary. I mean, this guy's an absolute juggernaut of the faith, planting churches, sending elders. He has brothers that he's ministering to and sisters that he's ministering to and with. And this kind of woven throughout his entire life is a missionary posture. And so there's probably no one better that we could go to to say, how is it that we ought to engage if we truly have to be missionaries in our lives than Paul the Apostle? And I know that before I even jump in, you're probably thinking, this sermon's not for me because there's no way I'm going to be like him. And what I'm not saying is that necessarily every single one of us are uniquely called to the capital A apostleship of Paul to go and to do in all of the nations the things that he did. Nor do I believe that any of you could pin the New Testament or the new New Testament, I guess it would be, just as a side note. What I do believe is that the principles that Paul lived out are the principles for the Christian life. And namely this, Paul had a simple method of being a missionary, and it was that he was committed to speaking the truth in love, very simply. He not only called the Ephesian church to do this, he not only called all of his disciples to do this, but Paul the apostle was the chief of speaking the truth to everyone in love. And so that comes with two hands on the same body, and I want to talk about those two hands that Paul used to share the gospel. And the first one is this, Paul shared the gospel in truth. Paul shared the gospel in truth. I want to read again in chapter 2 in 1 Thessalonians, verses 1 through 6. Now, before I start this, I think it's important that we remember where Paul's at here. Eric preached a couple sermons ago, and he talked about um, 
Paul preaching at the Areopagus in Athens. Well, if you just backtrack about a chapter, what you find is that Paul enters into the city of Thessalonica one chapter before he preached in Athens. The reason Paul was in Athens is because he got kicked out of Thessalonica. That's why. He was three Sabbath days in a row reasoning with the Jews there in the scriptures, and some of the Gentiles were coming along and listening, and people started to give over their lives to Jesus Christ. And it started to cause a little bit of a ruckus. On the third Sabbath day, as Paul begins to see more and more conversions, some of the Jews who were angry at Paul run to the political elite and they say, this guy, quote, is turning the world upside down. That's what the quote was. And Paul runs into a man named Jason's house because the, the mob is coming after him, basically, and they start up a riot. And basically, Jason has to go out, one of the new Christians has to go out, and he has to start to reason with the political leaders, and he's actually required to pay money to promise that Paul's going to shut his mouth about the gospel. <laughs> and so Paul basically is kicked out of Thessalonica. All the believers are like, listen, dude, you got to leave, or they're going to throw you in jail again. And you know that Paul's on the heels right now of already have been thrown in a Philippian jail. You guys remember that story? So it's not like he's really eager to go back into prison. It just doesn't work out well for Paul. So he goes to Berea, and the mob is so angry about his preaching at Thessalonica that they show up in Berea, and they chase him out of the neighboring town. That's how he shows up in Athens to preach at the Areopagus. And this was the sermon that Eric preached a couple of weeks ago, talking about Paul's presentation of the gospel to the Athenians. But here, he is writing a letter now back to the, Thessal the Thessalonians because he'd sent Timothy back to Thessalonica because he was afraid. I just preached the gospel for three weeks, and all these people were converted. He's concerned about this baby church and how they're going to be withstanding the persecution that is obviously there. Can you imagine this? This would be, uh, you know, we planted Providence seven years ago, and I can't imagine if I only had three weeks to preach, and then I had to leave, and then there's this group of people fledgling that are having to face down severe persecution. And I don't mean persecution like mean comments on Facebook, you know? It's like, they blocked me, they unfriended me because I'm a Christian, or something like that. It's like, this is violent. And he can't get back into the town because if Paul shows back up into the town, everybody's going to start freaking out again. So he sends Timothy, he hears word back that, Hey, good news, the church is still fighting for the faith. The church is still contending for the faith. There's some squirreliness going on. Like you got some lazy people in the church that don't want to work, and they're just kind of hoping that the, the more wealthy people in the church will cover their, their bill every time they go out to eat. This is where you get the famous, Paul says, listen, tell them if they don't work, they can't eat. You guys remember this text? Did you know that was in the Bible? It's not Benjamin Franklin. Paul said that. So he's like, hey, there's some things we need to address, but for the most part, they're still fighting and contending for the faith. But they got, these other, they got these other quarrelers, these other persecutors who are coming in and trying to lie about Paul. And so that's where we pick up the story here in 1 Thessalonians. Timothy comes back, gives Paul this report. Paul writes this first letter back to the Thessalonians as he's on the mission field. I want you to think through, this is a missionary doing the work of Jesus on the mission field and writing back to a church encouraging them to be missionaries. Does this make sense? It's all in the context of sharing the gospel. This is the way Paul lived his life. Everything was centered around this glorious message about a king who has come and is inviting you into his kingdom. And so when he writes, he's always writing in light of this. He's not just telling you how you ought to live. He's telling you how we ought to live in light of who Jesus is, which is a much different letter. So here's what he said in chapter number two, starting in verse one. 
For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So Paul says, we had just come back from being thrown in jail. We had just come back from being beaten and told to not preach the gospel in Philippi. We showed up to Thessalonica, and we had to have the boldness to say, we're going to do it again. Have you ever, had, have you ever come, come to grips with that, where you've done something that you know the Lord's called you to do, you're responsible for doing, and it didn't go well? Which, by the way, if no one ever told you that that's a possibility, I want to say, it's a possibility. You could do the right thing and get the wrong thing in return. And he says, we had to have the boldness to say, we'll do it again. So he preaches the gospel again at Thessalonica. And you know what he gets in return? It wasn't like people cheering. Don't picture touchdown. And everybody's like, yeah. You know, I get the opportunity to preach uh, on most Sundays. And, you know, there, there are difficult times where I get, maybe I get like an occasional email. Can I tell you what I really don't get is mobs being formed to try and kill me. For the most part, people are like, man, good sermon, even if it wasn't. Like, hey, you did a good job, you know, just plat- even just patting me on the back, like, glad you're my pastor. Paul rarely gets this in, the, in Asia Minor. He shows up, preaches probably more eloquently, more powerfully, and definitely more theologically astute sermons than me, and mostly gets beat up for it. And you know how he responds to that? Do it again. At one point in the book of Acts, Paul is drugged outside the city. He is stoned, and they think he's dead. They throw rocks at him, and they think he's dead. They leave him there. All the disciples come around him, and they're like, oh, my God, our our guy's dead. And it says that Paul wakes up, dusts himself off, and goes to the next town, preaches the gospel again. That's the commitment this guy has to sharing the love of Jesus. He wants to share the truth. And so he tells the Thessalonians this so that they know I do not have mixed motivations in my sharing. If I wanted to do this for any other reason other than because I truly feel God has entrusted me with this message, I probably would have stopped a long time ago. Listen to this. For our appeal does not spring, listen to these, from error or impurity or an attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please man who tests our hearts, or not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, or with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. I want to list out for you in bullet point form the different motivations that Paul says are entirely possible. And I want you to listen to them in light of, is it possible that today there are many who preach many different messages with these motivations, just as a possibility? He says, we didn't preach coming from error. We didn't preach from impurity. We didn't preach to deceive people. We didn't preach to please man or to please people. We didn't preach so that we could flatter people. We didn't preach so that we could gain money from people or as a pretext for greed. He says, we did not preach for vain glory or so that people would clap or amen us always, which is encouraging, but it's not the point, he says. 
Now, I think that Paul's doing this for two reasons. On one hand, he's trying to say, I came, I preached the gospel. I want you to be able to trust there's an authenticity to this truth because all of these mixed motivations are behind. But I think there's a second reason he says this, and that is there are many people, many false teachers that will come for all of these reasons to tell you almost anything you want to hear. The Bible tells us that, you know, there will be false teachers everywhere that just basically want to conjure up people and conjure up a crowd, and whatever can get the crowd around them, they'll tell you that. Because there's other motivations, whether it's personal vainglory or whether it's financial security or whether it's approval idols that need to be satiated or maybe it's because they're deceived. Whatever it may be, there's all these different motivations and Paul said, I had none of them. I can't hear, help but hear from Paul here. Paul is under the understanding that truth is from God and therefore ought not be manipulated. You know, Paul's a good Jew, so I can't help but think that Paul had read over and over and over again the first five books of the Bible. Most Jews, to Paul's study level, would have memorized these first five books. And I can't help but think that Paul, in his mind, has the interaction between Moses and the burning bush here, where Moses comes before the burning bush and God says, My, I am who I am, the self-existent one. Meaning the truth of God is this entirely self-sustaining, true reality, whether people believe it or not. Or as C.S. Lewis said, the truth of God, Christianity, is like the sun in that you see everything else by the fact that the sun rises. Everything, every other truth becomes more clear because of the central truth. Or C.S. Lewis goes on to say that if a man were to you know, scratch darkness on the inside of his cell that it wouldn't matter because the sun would still rise up in the morning. <laughs> Meaning that we don't get to dictate truth. We don't get to decide on truth. Now, we live in a culture that's all about that. You know, just don't share the gospel because that's your truth. Don't share the gospel because that's, that's your belief, that's your truth. And Paul just thinks that's total garbage. He thinks there's reality and there's unreality. And people who walk according to unreality are like children who are walking towards a dead end where they will fall over the cliff and it's the responsibility of the one who's walking in reality to go and scoop as many up as they can. So Paul lived his life trying to scoop people up. He's watching people. When he goes into Athens and he says, oh, I'm provoked in my spirit, it means that he's totally broken because there's tons of people living in unreality. And he's got the glasses on. And he's going, oh, no, look at everybody in danger. Jonathan Edwards has a great quote about truth. He says this, truth is the agreement of our ideas with the ideas of God. I love that. Truth is the agreement of our ideas with the ideas of God. So there's God's truth and then there's our ideas. And when we come to the knowledge of the truth, it's not that we've created it out of thin air. It's that finally by God's complete matchless grace, he opens the eyes of our hearts to agree with him about what's already been true. An example of this might be that you know, you have, many of us have children in the room. And your children just don't know what they don't know, right? Anybody find that? Like, your kids just don't know what they don't know. So they live their life in a limited understanding of things, mostly surrounding your household, right? They don't know, like, about the greater world. You can't talk, I can't talk to my son Jonas, who's five years old, about the Iran controversy. Because it's just totally other from him, you know? And, and if I try to rationalize with him about what's going on with Iran, he's quickly, first of all, he's quickly annoyed by me anyway, but he's quickly annoyed and wants to do anything else, right? 
But as you grow older and as you begin to, uh, your eyes are open to more of the world, they, they, you realize there are, there are realities. Oh, you know, it's not just my house, but it's my neighborhood. Oh, it's not just my neighborhood, but it's my town. Oh, there's realities that happen outside of my town that affect me here. Oh, then it's my city, and then it's my nation, and then it's my, you know, the world. And then everything starts to get bigger, and all these realities, you start seeing all these forces that are at play. And Paul knows that until the truth about Jesus Christ is revealed that we'll all be operating like my son is inside of our house, thinking that this is all that the world is. And so he comes in and he, he wants to preach the truth because he knows until the truth begins to land on the hearts of human beings, it is a dangerous game to play the game of life. Now, here's the thing. If this is true and what I just said is true, then we cannot think that calling people to reorient their lives or their realities around something that they have not yet understood will be met only with jubilation. <laughs> or to put it another way, uh, there's this old saying that most people don't like change. Anybody ever heard of that? Most of us are, like the statistics say that most of us are not early adopters, even though we think we are, you know? Like when the iPhone first came out, like we all have iPhones now, when the iPhone first came out, that most of us were kind of like, huh, yeah, right. Can you imagine that? Like there was a time where the internet came out and we're like, huh, we'll see if that works. And you're like, not me. Listen, the statistics tell, say that you're a liar. You and I were all like, huh, that'll never catch on. Netflix, huh. Like there was a time where we're all, we're still going to Blockbuster. You guys remember this? It wasn't long ago. Can we be honest? And so when you think about pre preaching the gospel, we are believing in our hearts that if we're going to tell someone it's going to be, like Eric said, idol smashing, God-centered, not man-centered. Can I promise you something? You've lived your life you-centered for your whole life, and no one had to teach you that. And then the gospel comes in and says, that's not how you were wired to be. You think that's going to go well? To go back to the child analogy, take away something precious to your kid and see how they operate. Take away something that's central to them. When they're young, it could be very simple. When I was growing up, I had a buggy blanket. It was a blanket with buggies on it. My mother used to say that the thing would get so filthy nasty because I'd carry it outside. I carried it into bathrooms, God forbid. I carried it in public because she said I, she couldn't pull the thing away from me. She said that she'd have to wait until I was napping and try to pull it off me just to put it in the washer. And if I woke up and it wasn't on, I'd freak and that is the human condition with our selfishness, is that when you try to rob someone of their own autonomy, you try to rob someone of their being able to define yourself, especially, especially people like you and me who have been told from jump that we can make really good decisions for ourselves. We just need to be given the freedom to do so. That ultimately what we're... What we're expecting by expecting people to rejoice when you tell them that is just a complete farce. What we really should expect is what Paul receives, which is people going, kill this dude. <laughs> Who is this guy? And that's what happens most of the time. See, Paul understood human beings maybe a little better than you and I understand them. But I want to encourage you, what's the application points here with us sharing the truth? Well, couple things that maybe are very simple because I think we don't share the gospel for maybe just one of a handful of reasons, and I'm going to close with them uh, in a little bit, but 
Here we see we need to expect opposition in sharing the gospel and focus more on asking God for boldness like Paul did. You ever wonder why Paul the Apostle in Colossians, he doesn't pray that he would be, hey, pray that God gives me overwhelming wisdom. Pray that God, these are all good prayers, by the way, but Paul never says this. Pray that God would help my theological clarity. Pray that God would help me to be more winsome, be more compelling. Instead, Paul says, pray that God would help me be bold. Why? Because you have to be courageous when you know you're going to be opposed. That's what Paul teaches us. Number two, Paul teaches us that we have to reject all nefarious motivations and rely on God who fuels our fire for evangelism. We have to reject our own heart because your own heart is going to make you want to do good things for all the wrong reasons. And that's entirely plausible. That's what the Pharisees did, right? They did a ton of righteous things for all the wrong reasons. They're tithing, they're washing their hands and doing all the ritualistic things. And Jesus comes in and says, your heart is far from me. You do all of these things, but you don't even do them because you love me. We have to be conscious that our hearts will twist the motivation to share the gospel, even that it might be our own pride that causes us to share it. Because we don't really share it, we bludgeon people with it. (laughs) And that usually comes from some inner sense that you and I did anything to be wise. This inner sense that I've, I came to know the truth because of some unique you know, goodness in me rather than there was just this gracious and merciful and loving God who opened the eyes of my heart. And then lastly, that we must declare God's truth and nothing else. So don't add in our own personal truth. That's whenever it becomes a little bit squirrely, right? Notice that Paul says, I've been entrusted with this thing and I only bring this thing. He's a good messenger. He uses the, uh, the term ambassador a lot, which an ambassador was entrusted with something from a king and then say, bring this over to this other nation. If you and I are ambassadors, think of what a national leader would do if you changed the message that you were given to bring to the other nation and think about how catastrophic that could be. If you just added in a few lines of your own. Anybody ever think of this? The president says, here's what I need you to do. I need you to take this message, take it to this other leader. Hurry and get there, it's really important. And then if you, sh- you showed up and you added a few lines on your own because you thought that it was a little more poetic from you, it could be catastrophic. I haven't seen the movie, but there's a movie 1917 about something similar to this, right? It's this couple of guys that are given a message. They say, Take, this could save lives. And it's about how much they went through just to bring the message to save the lives of this other troop, right? And I think through this idea that there's going to be perseverance, there's going to be all of these uh, external conflicts, and just how tragic it would be is us to finally make it there to share this message, and we thought our message was better. Oh, all the things that we, all the things we persevered through only to bring them what they don't actually need. And Paul says, I refuse it. So, a couple thoughts. We can protect the message, and we should. We can protect our own hearts from false motivations or trying to do our own thing. But here's the one thing that we can't protect. We can't protect ourselves from the facts that we may very well be met with opposition. You can't do it. That's the only thing you can't protect. There's no promise in the Bible that says you're going to share the gospel and always be cheered on like a champion. No promises there. Jesus actually tells his disciples if I, if I had tribulation in the world, why do you expect any different? He says, you're going to have it too. One of his parables that he tells some of the disciples, he says, uh, he's talking with the Pharisees, and he says, uh, we sent you the prophets, and then we sent you other messengers, 
sent you angels. And then even the Son of God showed up. And you know what they did to all of them? Killed them. Just human beings don't like to hear in our own firstborn nature truth because truth confronts and truth is uncomfortable and truth is challenging. And truth takes away the very things that we delight in even though they're rotting us. Like candy that's rotting your teeth when you're a kid and you can't help but eat it. I say when you're a kid, still. Okay, that's one hand of sharing the gospel. What's Paul's other method, though? Absolutely key. Not just boldness to be true, but this other hand is he shares himself in love. Sharing his own self in love. Listen to what he goes into. He says, we weren't all of these things, but we were this. Verse 7. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. It's an interesting analogy, isn't it? Paul, what would you say you're like on the mission field? Like a mom nursing kids? Didn't expect that, did you? I used war analogies earlier. You expected war general, right? When I think bold, I think, you know, Winston Churchill. He says, like a mom, gentle among you, nursing her own children. Now, when I thought about this more and more when I was uh, preparing my notes, I thought, you know, this is actually pretty spot on when you think of courage because moms, whenever you threaten their kids, might be the scariest thing on the planet. You thought you think about this? You ever seen like these Dateline NBC shows of what mothers will do if you mess with their kids? It's, I'm not kidding. It's craziness. It's biological too. They've actually done studies. Moms get these like rush of adrenaline. They pick up cars and stuff. They turn into an avenger, like overnight. So Paul's on to something here. What is being threatened when you threaten the kids? Moms are courageous. Moms are bold. Moms aren't worried about anything but one thing, the safety of my child. And Paul says that's how the Thessalonians had become to him, like kids, like his own kids, and like he was a mom. Okay, now, he goes in this next line. This might be one of my favorite verses in the New Testament. And I had a story to share with you about this verse, but I don't have time. That's very funny. But this might be one of my just favorite verses in the New Testament. Listen to what Paul says here. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. If you write in your Bible, that might be one to underline. It's impossible to share the gospel of God faithfully if you are unwilling to share your own self. Because you can't embody the gospel about a man who was willing to give up everything, namely his own life, if you yourself are not willing to lay down your own. Or to put it another way, if we can't get over our own idols of comfort to cross the street and lay down our life to have someone at our dinner table. It's very hard to preach a gospel with any authenticity about a man who gave up his life to die for them. Some missionaries put it like this. If Jesus was willing to die, what ought we be willing to do that our friends or our family members or our neighbors might hear the message about him? And that's what Paul says here. It's not only the gospel I want to share. I want to share me. And there's so much to this sharing of your own self that is essential to what Paul believes true, faithful, gospel, missionary activity looks like. And he gives you some examples. Verse 9, for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day so that we might not burden any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. Paul made it a point that he did not require any financial assistance of them, although he could have, because the Bible 
clearly states that he could have. He said, I decided not to, so I worked night and day. He would work night shifts so that he could share the gospel with them in their early immaturity. He says, your witness is in God also. Listen to these words. How holy, how righteous, how blameless was our conduct toward you believers. That's, I have a hard time saying that. But he doesn't. We were holy. We were blameless toward you. We loved you well. And you know how like a, here's another one, like a dad, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. He says we were like a mom, we were like a dad. Isn't this interesting? To be an effective missionary, you have to take on a familial posture and say, the world and those who are close to me are like family. That's interesting. Like a mom, like a dad, that's how we treated you. Gentle, affectionate, hardworking. As a side note, I did want to say this to fathers. I think Paul gives you dads a little parenting advice here because he says, like a father, I did these things. So we get a little insight into what Paul thinks fathers should do. He says, like a father... He exhorted, encouraged, and charged. So dads, what is your role with your kids? Exhorting them, encouraging them, and commissioning, charging them to live their life in a manner worthy of the gospel of God. That's what he said he did. Now, there's a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key by a gal named Rosaria Butterfield. And I, I really uh, I commend the book to you. I think that she did a great job talking about Christian hospitality and how sharing the gospel has to include sharing your own life. And she says this, particularly talking about homes, and I think this is key for us in a suburban context. Our homes are not our castles. Indeed, they're not even ours. My wife's a real estate agent, and I, and I can't help but you know, find that sometimes when we're looking for houses, what we're looking for is, is this expression of our retreat house, this fortress. You, know, I just, you think about the idea of a castle, like there's a moat around it. It's like people try to come to my house, they got to, you know, swim over the alligators to get in. I need my privacy. You know, we're a backyard people, right? It's like we all have front porches, don't really like them, don't care about them. The back is where you go, and that's where the stuff happens, right? And I'm not, listen, I'm, I'm indicting my own self. It's like that's where the real stuff happens is in the backyard, where people can leave you the heck alone. I've been dealing with these people all day, I want to be by myself, and Rosaria Butterfield says that when we think of our houses as castles, we miss the Christian element of hospitality, which is not only are your, is your house not your castle and your fortress and your safe place, your house isn't even yours. It's his. And hospitality is this sharing of self. I want to make clear, I do not think Paul is saying here that we ought to give over our personhood in order to be hospitable. He is saying that the door of our life must be opened up to welcome people into relationship with us so that we can preach a gospel about a God who opened up his life that they might be in relationship with him. Does this make sense? There's something that mirrors us opening up our arms and then telling others about how Jesus opened up his arms. And there's something that's disingenuous when we cross our arms and point to a Lord on the cross that opened up his. Does this make sense? This is why it's a right and left hand with Paul. Our lives have to be open so that we can then embody the very gospel that we preach. We talk about this Christ who has been willing to stop and pause and to engage with us and love us. And then we ourselves, and I'll just indict myself, and then I'm not stopping, engaging, loving, caring. 
and that's a schism. Paul says they have to be together, and he's not even saying it to condemn the Thessalonians. He's just trying to tell them, this is how I do it. Rosaria Butterfield, in her book, she she talks a little bit about hospitality, and she says, you know, hospitality includes uh, your family, your home, your time, your finances, your, your food, your privacy. It's all these things that we hold very dear, and she says, we... Because for the sake of the gospel, we open up these things. And here's the thing. When we dare to love other people in this way, I have to be honest, it opens us up to be disappointed, to be hurt, and to be badly mistreated. It might give you some insight into why Paul, the apostle, experienced such suffering. It's because he was willing to put himself in circumstances that were quote-unquote risky. I use that in air quotes because it's risky for us. Is it really risky for God who controls all, who's over all? You know, I, never, I don't think of Jesus being in a risky situation. I say this because remember whenever they tried to take Jesus and throw him off the cliff before it was his time, you know what he did? Just full on pulled a superhero move and walked right through him, right? That's what happened. But for you and I, we find ourselves in these risky situations where it's possible if I open up my house If you're a home group leader, you've experienced this. Then someone shows up and they have the quirkiest, weirdest theology in the world. And you open up for questions in your home group. You're like, hey, what do you, you know, let's talk a little bit about the Bible. And they say, you know, yeah, I was reading the Quran the other day. And you like earmuff your kids. What? Right? Or they start talking about this ideology that's totally opposite of what you yourself have tried to instill in your children. And now you got this real war right there in your living room that's happening. And you're like, Aren't, am I not supposed to be protecting these kids from the crazies? And Paul instead jumps right in with the crazies and stands for the truth boldly. And then loves them. Like, hey, come over to my house. We'll have dinner. And then Paul has no problem. Paul's the guy at Thanksgiving that you're always like, oh, man, is he going to do this again? Yeah, he always does it, man. We stopped inviting that guy. They throw him in jail, and the the guards are there, and they're beating up Paul. He's bleeding. He wakes up from him. He's like, hey, you want to talk about Jesus? Some guard's like, not again, this guy. So yeah, when we dare to love people like this, it opens us up to be disappointed, hurt, and even badly mistreated. But I think when we dare to love like this, it also displays the gospel in real time to people. You ever wondered why Paul could say, we are, we are bearing in our bodies the afflictions, filling up in our bodies the afflictions of Christ, so that you could see that? He's saying not that Jesus in some way, shape, or form was not afflicted enough. He's saying that when Christians are willing to suffer for the name of Jesus, then others can say, that's what the gospel looks like, and our words are validated. You see, Paul uses this method over and over again. Open the scriptures in synagogues, open your life. Open the scriptures in the synagogues, then open your life. Open the scriptures in the synagogues, and then open your life. This is what Paul always did. These were in hand in hand. And he tells them the truth in love, and then he lives out a loving life. He tells them the truth in love, and then he lives out that loving life that that truth produced in him. He does it regularly over and over and over again. And so I want to leave you with this thought. There are four things that most likely, and there may be more, but I just wrote down four, that most likely hold us back from this. And I use us particularly because I'm not putting myself in a different category. They hold us back from this kind of open up the truth of God to people and then open up our lives. And here they are, and I want you to consider these. 
Number one is fear. I'm afraid of what might happen if I say that to somebody. I'm afraid of what those people might say to my kids or do to my house if I open my door to them. I can't give to people because we don't make enough money and then we won't have anything. I won't be able to get the things we want or need if I'm generous like that. So there's fear, right? Or there's pride. Hey, I learned on my own, why can't they? You ever heard that one? Nobody taught me. Why do I gotta go teach people? Or I don't need other people. I learned to do what what I did on my own, so why do they need people? There's another. Number three, maybe it's the idol of comfort or selfishness. Like, I just don't feel like that. I gotta do my own thing, so I don't have time for that. I got better things to do. Now, I think that one's kind of interesting because that one ignores the people that made space at the table for you, right? It's like someone gets the chair and puts the table up for you and like sets it up, and then you sit down to eat, ah, and then another person comes in, and you're like, sorry, we don't have room, and then you just keep eating. Or some people will try to say, you know, that sounds good, Corp, but that's just not convenient or realistic, that life. And then lastly, maybe it's shame. And I've heard this as a pastor over and over, and I just want to encourage that Jesus can heal from this. I don't know my Bible enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not like you. I'm not eloquent. Um, I don't, here's one. I don't have a powerful testimony like that. Uh, my house isn't big enough for that. I don't have nice things to share. It's just a, a, like constant shame about what you don't have, what, how you're incapable. And I just want to tell you this. Jesus invites us onto this mission with him. He is already doing this glorious work, and we get the opportunity, not the burden, to join him in it. He not only invites us into the work, but hear me on this, and I hope you hear this more than anything else. He also invites us to be worked on. And so if I, if I read any of that stuff and any of that resonated with you, I want to tell you Jesus can free you this morning from fear. Jesus can free you from shame. He can free you from the, the fetters of pride. And he can free you from the death that is a self-centered life. Jesus can and still does free us from these things. And I would say and caution each of us to not to run past it to think none of those things are me because the truth is all of the forces of our own hearts and the forces of the world work to make us into those four things. Fearful, selfish, prideful, shame-filled. And Jesus steps in in quiet moments like this and says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. I'll make you new. If you'll stand to your feet, I'll pray for us. Father, I confess to you that there are parts of parts of my life that as I read this text, as I prepared this sermon that I see and I imagine that there are those under the sound of my voice that see certain things that just, just we just don't like God. We don't like our fear of man. We don't like our penchant to self-flattery or to flattering others. Lord, we confess we don't like that we're unwilling to open our lives in specific ways. We don't like that we can become protective over the things that you gave us freely. And so, Holy Spirit, would you now open our hands, open our hearts 
change us from the inside out. And as we take of your table in communion, as we sing, would you free, would you break the chains that look to bind our hearts so that when we leave here, we don't, we aren't compounding the shame and guilt, but instead we'd be freed from it, God. Remind us that you love us right where you go, right where we are. And that you see us for who we are and you have accepted us in Christ. Bring that freedom to us, God, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.